What a joyous evening it has been already to have lifted up our thoughts collectively as we've been led in prayer, to also be apprised of various situations concerning our sick, in addition to those matters, to have had the opportunity to sing these lovely songs of praise and hymns of adoration to God. Even now, what an appropriate time it is to look deeply into the character of one of the chapters found in God's Word as we look tonight at the 16th chapter of the book of Revelation. During this series of studies, we have begun in chapter 1 of this book and have now advanced all the way to this 16th chapter, all the while seeking to appreciate the symbolic character of the book as explained itself in Revelation 1 verse 1, and as has often been presented since, to remind us of the victory that is to be had for those who are the devout followers and devoted ones related to the character of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This evening, as we've arrived at this chapter, let me, by way of introduction, recall to our mind that many of the things found in chapter 15, in fact, will have a role to play. Thus, let's spend a moment and review, if we might, how that we began chapter 15 and how that leads us to where we have arrived this, this Lord's Day evening. The enthralling character of the study before us has, in fact, reached in our mind to the very pinnacle of consideration of how that God works in the affairs not only of individuals, but nations as well. Even though Rome was the ruling power of the world at the time John wrote this epistle, and even though the difficulties and cruelty surrounding that nation were often noted, and in fact it was the death knell for many in the realms of Christianity, it was nonetheless the case that God promised victory to those that were His. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. To note verse 13 of Revelation 14. As we noted though in Revelation 15, it was the case there that that tremendous song that was sung had two stanzas, the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And in the very outset of that chapter, was the interesting scene that there were seven angels each carrying a bowl. These seven vials, or seven bowls, contained the very wrath of God. And furthermore, they were commanded to pour it out, those contents of those bowls. And it was noted very carefully that no man could enter into the temple until the fulfillment of the seventh bowl. That immediately led us in our mind to appreciate the outpouring of these bowls was exceedingly significant. For we appreciate that no man having opportunity to enter into the very presence of the temple, given that God's presence is symbolically stated to be there, we understood that we were then to be noted that this had to roll to play in historical development, the very unleashing of things and forces by and large on planet earth. As we arrive though at studying the first four of those vials, we noted that historically they seemed to take place prior to or right near the outset of the 19th century. But that left us with three of the vials yet to discuss. What were they? Tonight's lesson will cover the latter of these three bowls, these three vials, and within them, as you can tell from the title, specifically the sixth one, we in fact will discuss Armageddon. No doubt one of the most enthralling and captivating words that seems to be present anywhere. For so often we note sermons and books and entire articles are based on that word. In fact, Brother Harold before the lesson tonight made note how that that is the centerpiece and the very hinge pinion for many of the premillennial theories as they're presented. In context this evening, what is Armageddon? 
does it have within it the context and thoughts that are so often taught to us? We shall see this evening. But first, we have the fifth vial to deal with first. As we consider that, I would ask that you note with me Revelation chapter 16, and let us read together verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. We notice that there is a significant brevity to the character of the pouring out of the fifth vial. But I would ask you to first note some specifics before we attempt to tackle the interpretation. First of all, exactly what does the Scripture say? First, in verse number 10, The fifth angel poured out his vial. Where was it poured? Upon the seat of the beast. And in the American Standard Translation, and in fact the fullness or thrust of the Greek word is the throne of the beast. Might we immediately appreciate there should be significance to that point. But not only that, what was the aftermath? The consequences of the pouring out of this vial upon the seat or the throne of the beast. Notice with me, darkness. The kingdom of the beast was full of darkness. And as if that weren't enough, they, that is the supporters of the beast, the members of the beast's kingdom, gnawed, G-N-A-W-E-D, gnawed their tongues for pain. But in addition, verse 11, the same citizens of that kingdom, the kingdom of the beast, we note that they blasphemed, that is, they reviled the God of heaven. Why? Because of the pains and the sores that were theirs. And finally, even despite all of that, they repented not. After having at least briefly noted the specifics, might we notice some observations that may aid us to appreciate more fully the character of what it was that was future from the time John wrote it, but that fulfills that particular prophecy. Notice again that as we considered the fourth of these vials last Lord's Day evening, we remember there that the time frame related again to about the turn from the 18th to the 19th centuries in terms of that that seemed to be its fulfillment with regard to the fact this evening. Might us consider more carefully that there's an interesting relation between this and the fifth of the trumpet judgments. When we studied chapter 9 a few weeks ago, we learned rather interestingly that the fifth of the trumpet judgments was a rather dramatic event. You might recall with me that the bottomless pit was opened, locusts came out of it, and their number was so vast and large that they covered the sun and there was darkness. Might we know there's darkness also here? That does not simply appear to be coincidental. And in addition, might we notice that this kingdom spoken of here, in addition to being full of darkness, they gnawed their tongues for pain. In light of those events, may I submit or perhaps suggest to you this. First, we would do well to attempt to identify what is this throne or the seat of the beast. First, who is the beast? In Revelation 13, we learned there that there were two dramatic beasts under description. There was a sea beast followed by a land beast. And that land beast had as his objective in charge the encouragement, in fact, the demanding of the worship of the first beast. 
That, that sea beast is the one that's under discussion here and referred to yet again. And thus, if we recall who we identified that first beast to be, we will have gone a long way toward appreciating the thrust of this fifth of the vials. We learned really without much hesitation that the fifth, or rather the sea beast, was the Roman Empire. In fact, there was a significant amount of evidence that pointed toward that conclusion. Operating on that presumption then, what would be the seat or throne of the Roman Empire? The city of Rome. She was the imperial city of the day of John. In fact, she ruled the world for many centuries to come from the time of John. She was that place where the Roman Senate met. That was the place, in fact, where the Caesars had the royal palaces and the dominion of the known world at the time was sent forth. Thus, to say in the fifth vial that it was poured out upon the seed or throne of the beast is to say that this idea, this given entity, would be poured out on Rome itself, on the character of that empire and all of its greatness, at least at that time. But what's more, let us look further. What about darkness? We notice that this kingdom, this kingdom of the beast, was full of darkness. Quite often in the Holy Scriptures we are reminded that God corresponds with light, the devil corresponds with darkness. In fact, that which is evil and ungodly, that which is opposed to the ways and power of God is often described using terms related to darkness. What was it our Savior declared in John 8 verse 12? He said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In 1 John 1 verse 5, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. To take us back to the days of the Old Testament minor prophets, the prophet Joel, in fact, in a rather dramatic and judgment text without question, stated there that darkness directly corresponded to ungodliness and evil and was an artifact of the very judgment of God. Could it be the same way here? Could it be that the word darkness, as it's defined here and for this particular verse for us, is a mere statement of the character that this kingdom, this empire, this one of the beasts, is opposed in every lot to the nature of the God of heaven? For whereas God is truth, this beast is untruth. The thing for which it stands, in fact, parades false religion. We shall, in fact, be asked to consider that again more carefully in a moment. But notice also in verse number 10 that they gnawed their tongues for pain. A symbolic reference indeed. You and I would easily consider the fact that when there is the gnawing of the tongue, it relates to a matter of perhaps tremendous pain and agony and anguish. But what's more, it may well be descriptive of those instances and times when in life there is such duress and such anxiety that even though great personal physical pain may not be involved, one is so overcome and agitated thereby that one can symbolically be said to be a gnawer of the teeth or of the tongue. That would appear to be the case here. For consider with me what occurred in 1848 a mere half century following when we appreciated that perhaps the greatest of the fulfillments of the fourth vial took place. Again, at that time, the papal power was at its greatest of might. We have already noted that perhaps in France it had been a bit weakened, but for the remainder of Europe such had not been the case. 
Napoleon had spread much of those influences throughout the entirety of the European continent. And there was such forcefulness and such respect that no one dared even question the character of the papacy, the very matter that was housed still in Rome with the Vatican. But that began to change dramatically in 1848. In that year, in fact, a tremendous revolt occurred when the people of Italy themselves revolted against the papacy, the Pope, and refused to submit politically any longer to him. And may I suggest that it has been the case ever since. Never since then has the Pope had command over political affairs the way he did then. You and I are accustomed today to the influence religiously, but politically, not in our lifetime have we ever seen it. There was a time when kings bowed before him. There was a time when entire nations had the course of their affairs determined by him. That is no longer the case. In fact, with the removal of his power on that occasion, many of the convents of the Roman Empire were confiscated. Many of the lands and possessions were confiscated and well and were distributed in other ways and means. At that point, the papal power politically was removed. Could that be then the reference to that gnawing of the tongues? What an anguish it must have been for the very empire in which the kingdom arose to suddenly find that their power was gone politically. Perhaps that was one interesting suggestion of the interpretation. Might I suggest that if that harmonizes well, it does seem to relate so powerfully to the nature of the sequencing of the events. What's more, that does lead us rather powerfully to notice that in verse number 11, these blasphemed the God of heaven. Were these who had lost their empire, were they sorrowful for that which had taken place? They blasphemed God instead. The very nature of what God stood for was ridiculed and reviled, and yet they still did not repent. They still were of the same disposition of mind as they had been before. Maybe one final observation. When you and I note that they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. What Rome had done to so very many in terms of her inflicting of sores, her inflicting of difficulties was now coming symbolically back upon her. Maybe you and I have heard that statement, what goes around comes around. Isn't it true here we might well quote Ecclesiastes 11.1 1, where there it says, Cast thy bread upon the water and thou shalt receive it not many days hence. Isn't it the case that here what Rome had so often brought upon others, she herself was experiencing in greatness. In light of these points, it's the sixth angel and the sixth vial that next stands before us. I'd encourage you to think with me briefly as we again read, beginning in verse number 12, let's read through verse 16. Revelation 16, verses 12 through 16. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together unto a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. 
And with that, the curtain drops on the sixth vial, and the remaining verses of the chapter turn our attention to the seventh one. Let us then turn and note the specifics of this one, and then as before, attempt to look more carefully at some of the observations that we might be able to make. First, we note the pouring out of the sixth vial. On what was it poured out? On the Euphrates River. Furthermore, in addition to that in verse 12, we see that that water of the river was dried up, and the kings of the east were thus able to advance across it and make enemy advancement toward the nature of whatever their enemy was. In addition, verse number 13, immediately three unclean spirits are seen. These spirits were like frogs, and amazingly enough, they came out of the mouth of these three entities, the dragon, the beast, and the unclean and the false prophet. It is of great interest to observe immediately following that we have a description of these unclean spirits. For that's how they are identified, spirits of devils working miracles, that is to say signs, which go forth not to a specific few, but to the kings of the earth and in fact to the whole world, summoning them to the event that shall take place at a place called Armageddon. In the midst of this, in verse 15, we have a tremendous assertion on the part of the deliverer. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth, keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Merely to consider that, might I again note that there have been tremendous numbers of affirmations and assertions based upon this text. As you notice in verse 16, we do have mention of a place called Armageddon. Where is it? What is it? What does it describe? What shall take place there? In a very brief way, most of the premillennial ideas will present a description much like this. They will state then that when we approach near the time of the Savior's second coming, that he will come in some kind of a rapturous event in which it will be by and large secretive. As that takes place, those who are the saints will be whisked away and they will be with him for some seven years. While they are with him, left behind upon earth will be the ungodliness and the wickedness, those who are in fact following the devil himself. During that period of seven years, for the first three and a half of those years, the Jews that are upon earth, and we might know they apparently are not taken away, but the Jews that are left upon earth will in fact proceed to return to Israel. They will proceed to rebuild the temple of Solomon described in the Old Testament, and they will proceed to again worship by the offering of sacrifices demanded under the law of Moses. During the last three and a half of the years, there will be the uprising of a very powerful and singular individual upon earth. He shall be the Antichrist in their prescription. As the Antichrist is raised, he will gather many, many people, in fact, all over the world to follow him. Ultimately, as he will bring forth evil, in fact, to its very utmost and extent upon earth, finally Christ will return yet again for a third time, at least in their prescription. As he does so, he shall enter into battle with this Antichrist at a place called Armageddon. Christ shall be victorious. This one shall be defeated. And Christ shall set up a reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem upon earth. In a very quick and in a very, very fast fashion, that is the heart and core of where Armageddon appears in the prescription of so very many. 
Our question is, do the, does the Bible teach that? Is that the way that Armageddon appears in this text? If it is, certainly you and I would like to encourage that doctrine. But if it's not, what then is the correct interpretation? And what is the teaching of Armageddon? Let us first return to verse number 12. As we notice the building up of the tension and of the interesting matters concerning it, let us notice very interesting what is stated at the outset of verse number 12. First, the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the Euphrates River. We have encountered that elsewhere. For in fact, that was the very occurrence in which the six of the trumpet judgments took place. In fact, on that occasion, and this is in Revelation 9, we remember that there were angels that were told to pour out their particular matters and to loose the factors related to the Euphrates River. When they did, there was a gigantic army that was unleashed, and we came to appreciate that that would be the very army from the direction of the east that finally overran the Roman Empire and led to its downfall. I wonder what the significance shall be here. Let us again observe that this sixth angel in verse number 12 poured out on the Euphrates River the vial. The waters were dried up and the way of the kings of the east was prepared. It sounds exceedingly familiar, doesn't it? That's exactly what appeared to take place in Revelation 9. There, as those kings moved in the direction eastward, it was such that they overcame Rome. What about the emphasis now? May I suggest to you that it is again a tremendously powerful description of the reduction in the Roman religious power. It began to fade as influences from the east mounted in their heightened ascendancy. For one, the Mohammedan Empire, Muslim, as it advanced from the east, it overran Rome in a heartbeat. And even today, the influence is nowhere near in that part of the world what it is in Islam. It's certainly fair to say that the events described in verse number 12 describe that the downfall of this empire and its greatness was occurring. Isn't it interesting, though, in verse 13, the tone seems to change immediately. No longer are we seemingly discussing the matters of these advancing kings from the east. Now, immediately, three unclean spirits appear. There's no question where they come from and who their power source is. When Satan began to realize his Roman Empire and all the evil and wickedness and fornication that it encouraged was collapsing in front of him, notice that he drew to his aid two more to help him, to hold up and prop up the power of Rome worldwide. Oh, how amazingly he succeeded. Three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. In chapter 12, we learned that the dragon was none other than the devil himself, that old serpent, Revelation 12, verse 9. Here we notice that not only he, but also out of the mouth of the beast. What beast is that? That's the Roman Empire, the sea beast of Revelation 13. Furthermore, out of the mouth of the false prophet. At this point, we would do well to consider carefully who is this false prophet and to what should we identify him? The language would seem easily to relate that false prophet to the second of the beasts, the land beast. And who did we identify that to be? Revelation 13, false worship, the cult of emperor worship. And thus, as what grew out of that, Roman Catholicism, spread the world over, might we appreciate then that that which is appreciated here is that from the dragon, 
the sea beast and the land beast is a threefold attack by the devil himself worldwide to gain the ascendancy and attention of what was collapsing when Rome collapsed. And oh, how well he did his job. There are still multiplied millions under the throes of false religion today under the artifact of appreciating what was held up by the nature of these three as though out of the mouth of frogs discussed in Revelation 16. What's the significance of frogs? Perhaps we can go back and appreciate that one of the plagues upon Egypt in Exodus chapter 7 and 8. The second of them, in fact, was a plague of frogs. And as they came upon the landscape, might we remember how interesting it was for the Pharaoh to plead with Moses to take the frogs away. Can we not appreciate even here that the frogs then stood for that which, even though the appreciation of its power was such that it was mighty and great, it nonetheless brought bad things, frogs upon people. Are we to believe that the dragon and the first and second beast bring anything good? Obviously not. It too brings bad things, that which is opposed to the character of God himself here. And as if that weren't enough, in verse 14, the description even deepens. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, and again that word in the Greek is signs, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Interesting, isn't it, how that even the Savior in Matthew 7 verse 15 said, Beware of false prophets. There he made note that though they may be such that they appear as sheeps, to be in sheep's clothing, they are nonetheless as ravening wolves. False prophets can appear so innocent. They can appear so smooth and eloquent and easy to listen to. But their message is fatal. It's deadly. Spiritually, it has within it the poison of asps, as it were. And isn't it fair to say here that that which is under description takes us directly to verse 14. These will propagate a doctrine that is actually the spirits of devils. They will, in fact, have at their disposal signs. That is to say, doctrine or information or even the capability of deceiving individuals. And all the while, the kings of the earth shall even fall prey to it. And isn't it fair to note the whole world with the gathering at that place in verse 14 to the great day of God Almighty. What is the great day of God Almighty? The books of Amos as well as Joel in the Old Testament have reminded us there that the day of the Lord will be a tremendous and great day and it is a day of His judgment when those who have opposed Him, though they be personal, personal individuals or nations at large, shall stand before him and give an accounting for the things that they have espoused and what they've taught. Oh, the day of God Almighty will be a day of darkness, for Amos said so. And it'll be a day of great gloominess, for that's how Amos described it. Here can we appreciate even further then the interesting fact of where we're headed to in verse 16. This place to which they're gathered is called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. For as often as one hears premillennial lessons based upon that word, one might think that word appears often in the Word of God. One might think that that word appears practically every other chapter at least. It is of great interest to note that this is the one and only place 
in all 66 books, in all 1,189 chapters, in all 31,102 verses, is right here. Revelation 16, verse 16. Isn't it interesting to note then that as we have come to it in context, what now does Armageddon mean? Let me submit to you that the word Armageddon literally means hill or mount of Megiddo. You and I have encountered that city elsewhere. It is in a significant Old Testament city. What is it that took place there on many occasions? If we take a short journey through the Old Testament, it'll be worth our while, I'm convinced. We first encounter it in Judges, the fifth chapter. On that occasion when Deborah with Barak also at her side was such that they fought against Sisera and Jabin. We remember that the forces of God were victorious. And ultimately Sisera, of course, was put to death when Jael nailed a tent peg through his temples. But can we not recall, where was the battle of the forces of God over the forces of Jabin taking place? It was at Megiddo, and there's where Sisera was overcome. This was a given place where there was victory for the people of God, victory for the forces of that which was good. Later, what else took place? If we run forward to the books of Kings in the Old Testament, we also might remember that the Ahaziah died at Megiddo, as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 9. Here was one of the very kings of Israel who himself was overcome and killed by Jehu. We might recall that interesting king of Old Testament lore. And thus, when we come to that point, we have here a place where there was significant victory for the forces of God on the one hand, but a place where one of its kings died on the other. Maybe we should also recall King Josiah. Of all the kings that Judah ever enjoyed physically, Following the days of David, Josiah was the best. At the young age of eight, he ascended the throne and led the people of God in the way of correctness and righteousness. And when the book of the law was found in 2 Kings 23, he lamented over the fact that God's people were not doing what that book said. We remember, though, that sadly, Josiah met his death at Megiddo. We thus see, on the one hand, Megiddo had thoughts of great victory, but it also brought thoughts of great defeat. If you and I were then to notice that in the history of God's people from the Old Testament era, the very mention of Megiddo would have brought thoughts of defeat, for that's what happened in every case. Sometimes it was God's people that, were, that met a difficulty there. Sometimes it was God's enemies that met their difficulty there. Keeping that idea in mind, let us return to Revelation 16. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. What a beautiful and powerful reference then to the fact that here will be the very judgment and message point of the God of heaven. You and I often use symbolic references in exactly the same way. Might I list one that you've no doubt heard of? In casual conversation, if you or I were to say he or she has met his or her Waterloo, Every one of us knows what that means. We understand, perhaps not all the historical reference, but we know what that means. It was at Waterloo, which is a city in Belgium, where Napoleon met his final defeat. After having led the forces of France for so long, and he was utterly unconquerable, finally, he bit off more than he could chew at Waterloo, and he was beaten. He was defeated. 
And even today, when we say that he has met his Waterloo, whatever incident in life has occurred, it has overcome him. He's been beaten. There's even been more than one song where Waterloo is used in that very same way. In essence, if you and I may take the liberty of stating it that way, God is testifying here that the forces of the beast, the forces of the dragon, and the forces of the false prophet shall meet their Waterloo at the very place and time that the God of heaven has decreed. They shall not be victorious. Just in the same way that the people in the Old Testament often were beaten at Megiddo, as they were in the days of Deborah and Barak, and as it was the case where Josiah, as well as the other king Ahaziah, died there, it shall be a great day of punishment and death for some, but oh, what a day of victory it shall be for others. The interesting thing then about Armageddon is that it has nothing at all related to the premillennial concept attached to it. Nothing. There's not a drop of truth in that prescription that I mentioned earlier tonight. That part about the tribulation, the rapture, the second and third comings of Christ, Jesus setting up a throne in Jerusalem, none of that is taught in the Bible. In fact, it is completely evidenceless from the point of view of God's Word. There are others who will race backward to Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 and think that they find there an explicit description of Armageddon. It is not so. Those two chapters do, in fact, present a thrilling description. There's no excusing that fact. It is absolutely breathtaking, but it's not talking about Armageddon. It's talking about the final overthrow and defeat of God's enemies in the Old Testament regime when ultimately the persecutors, namely Babylon, would be overthrown. That happened, my friend, over 2,500 years ago. The events of Ezekiel 38 and 39 have long since happened. As you and I then turn to this sixth vial in Revelation 16, it is not talking about an event yet to come in light of the greatness of what often is presented with respect to it. And with that said, that brings us to notice perhaps verse 15. We'd be remiss not to lay some emphasis upon the greatness of that passage. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. That warning is, of course, for those represented beneath the character of that sixth vial, understanding that they should ever be vigilant to repent of the errors and to make sure that they are right with God so that their shame would not be visited and seen. In a very powerful way, though, can you and I not see that that symbolic message is presented in many ways in the New Testament? You and I are warned with respect to the day of judgment to be ready. We are warned time and again that Jesus is going to come like a thief. There should be no signs foretelling it. He himself stated that, did he not, in Matthew 24. Paul reiterated it in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2. As thus he comes as a thief, we must ever be watchful, ever be prepared and always ready. For only then will, be, will we be guaranteed to be ready at the time of our death or when he does return. The wise words of verse 15 let us watch and keep our garments. I might suggest finally with respect to that that the verb tenses are significant. We noted earlier, I think, in the lesson this morning about the aorist tense in Greek. This tense is completely different. This tense provides a continuous, ongoing discussion. One must always watch and always be ready. It's not that we can watch one time or prepare our garments one time 
It must be continuous all the time, every day, so that we'll be ready whenever our own death occurs or whenever the Lord and Savior returns again. With the sixth vial discussed, that which finishes the chapter is the seventh. Would you read with me verses 17 to 21, please? And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth, so, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed to God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Having read again the specifics of the seventh vial, let us note again the ideas that are expressly stated, and then we'll briefly note some conclusions and some observations concerning it. First of all, might we notice, in light of the seventh vial, that this one was poured out into the air. Very different than the location that the others were poured out. But as it was poured out in the air, we notice there was a decree from heaven, and it's an emphatic one. It is done. Three little words. It is done. The seventh plague had brought an ending, that vile, to the character of what God intended to be revealed. And furthermore, we notice that in verses 18 and following, there were voices and thunders and lightnings and an earthquake. And the earthquake was so great of intensity and magnitude that there had not been one like it. As we notice in verses 19 and following, the city was divided into three parts. And in, in, in addition, Babylon came in remembrance before God who poured out the cup of the fierceness of the wine of his wrath upon them. Finally, in verses 20 and 21, we're told that every island and mountain fled away and the curtain drops in verse 21 when we read about a hail of such great magnitude that each of the hailstones weighed a talent. As we can perhaps visualize and imagine what that would be like to experience. Let's make some observations about the thrust of it. Again, as has been the case six times before, every one of these vials seems to align rather carefully and powerfully with the same numbered trumpet judgment. And it has happened again. When we studied the seventh of the trumpet judgments in Revelation 11, we notice there the thrust and idea had to do with the great judgment of God when it was proclaimed that the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of God and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. In the verses that followed, we were told that God's wrath would be poured out undiluted and unmixed upon those unprepared. It would seem that here in the aftermath of the events, we are seeing something similar. God's wrath and all its majesty poured out in a tremendous way upon those unprepared. Might we notice some more of the specifics? We see in this text the ultimate and final defeat of those forces opposed to God Himself. 
we see those forces listed in terms of the dragon, that is to say the devil. And interestingly enough, we would do well to record in our mind much of these latter few verses because they will reappear in chapters 17, 18, and 19. The next three chapters will elaborate upon these last few of this chapter, and we will be time and again returning to see the fullness and the thrust of them. For example, in verse 19, Babylon is mentioned. Who is Babylon? Is that the literal city of Babylon? Or is that a symbolic reference to some other place? We shall see in chapter 17 it's some other place. Not only that, the events of these voices and thunders and lightnings and earthquakes. As we have so far studied in this book of symbolism and figurative character, are we then to consider that this would be some kind of warning for the end of time? It is not so. This is another one of those dramatic illustrations like we found in the Old Testament where Joel and Amos and Isaiah in particular all described momentous earth-shaking events in language exactly like this one. For example, when Isaiah made mention of the thunders and lightnings and earthquakes in Isaiah chapter 10, did those literally happen when ultimately and finally Assyria was overthrown not many years later? Certainly there may have been some things, but it is not of great noteworthiness. Rather, that was God's way of relating through Isaiah the fact that these are gigantic events in the history of the world. From this shall come another empire and another kingdom. Similarly here, this is God's description of the final and ultimate overthrow of all that opposes Him. It is interesting to notice in verse 21 that there is especially of note this hail. If you and I were to consider any possibility of literalness there, it certainly is of great difficulty, isn't it? For what is it about the nature of that verse and the one that precedes it? What could happen to every island and every mountain upon earth? that they would simply flee away. What is it about this hail that would lead a given hailstone to weigh 16 pounds? For that's how much a talent would be, a 16-pound hailstone. It is an interesting thought to contemplate then as that verse closes, the plague was exceedingly great. At this point, having concluded that chapter, might I ask you to simply think with me about a text I've included from Hebrews 10 verse 31. For indeed, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For those that are unprepared, for those that have served the beast, the dragon, the false prophets, oh, how terrible their end shall be. Maybe a figure, a picture would be of some help. We've seen this picture before, the one about the angels carrying the various bowls, a given artist's drawing or attempted representation of how he envisioned this. Might I ask you to consider, though, one last figure, one last picture. This is, again, an artist's idea about trying to describe in picture form what you and I have just seen in the seven vials. Previously, we had looked at vials one through four. That wasn't supposed to happen. Here at this point, it won't come back on due to the fact the bulb would overheat. So I guess if we may conclude the lesson, 
Could I simply ask you to notice in conclusion one final statement about the preparation of verse 15 and also one final thought about the terribleness of experiencing these plagues. One of the points that I've tried to emphasize throughout has been that these plagues are those which the people of God and those prepared shall not experience. That was the whole point of the Egyptian plagues by and large. The Egyptians experienced them, but God's people were protected. Later, we shall notice in the very last chapter of this book in Revelation 22, that there is a tremendous warning given. In fact, it reads in such a way that it relates to the Word of God. To those who would add to the words of the prophecy of this book, John expressly said, To him shall be added the plagues written therein. We now know what those plagues are. To any person who would tamper with the all-sufficient, completely verbally expired Word of God, to that person will be added these seven plagues we've just now discussed.